Today we come to the fourth of the five solas that we have been looking at since uh, Reformation Sunday. Today we will look at sola fide, or faith alone. Our text today is going to be from Paul's letter to the Romans, verse 17, chapter 1. I'm going to actually read verse 16 and 17, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Father, I pray today as we speak your gospel, as we read your gospel, as we talk of your gospel, that Father, the power of that gospel would break through our own hearts. And that you would equip us through your word, God, to go forth into this world, to be witnesses to you for your glory. Father, we thank you for the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. It's in that name we pray. Amen. All right, here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, in particular verse 17, um, we see the doctrine of faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ is essential for our salvation and justification. Our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We are justified when God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. Therefore, our justification does not rest on any merit found in us, and it does not rest upon the grounds of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us. We are justified by a righteousness that is alien to us, meaning it is other than us. The righteousness of God is gifted to us by grace alone and received by us through faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone as it produces in us good works. So this is what we want to talk about today. Faith alone. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, we began this short series on the five solas of the Reformation when we, on Reformation Sunday, begin this, and we mentioned that Reformation Sunday uh, is a commemoration, a celebration of Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle. 
Martin Luther wasn't the first reformer. There were many before him, uh, and there have been many after him. But that central event of nailing those 95 theses has kind of come to be the, the benchmark of the beginning of the Reformation proper. Martin Luther wrestled with this very text in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And Luther had what has come to be known as the Tower Experience, named for the place in which he finally came to understand the meaning of Paul's words here in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I want to read an excerpt from Luther himself uh, from the preface to the complete edition of Luther's Latin works. And Luther wrote concerning his wrestling with this text, and I quote, I meditated night and day on these words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice, meaning that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. The just person lives by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. Close quote. Now it's interesting, in Luther's own words, he hated the righteousness of God. He hated that phrase and he hated in his words, the righteousness of God, because of his misunderstanding of what the righteousness of God meant. And that's what I want to talk about today, because I don't think Luther, 500 and some odd years ago, is the only person who has misunderstood what the righteousness of God means and what it means when the scripture, when Paul writes that it's revealed to us in the gospel. Luther came to realize that he had been looking at the righteousness of God incorrectly. The word for justification in Latin means to make righteous. So that the fathers of the Latin church in Luther's day had been teaching that God made the unrighteous sinner righteous by infusing in that sinner God's own righteousness. Luther came to understand that Paul's words in Greek, not in Latin, Paul's letter to the Roman written in Greek did not mean an infusing of God's righteousness, but an imputing of God's righteousness. God reckoned the unrighteous sinner as righteous through faith in the righteousness of Christ. In other words, God declared the unrighteous sinner righteous. God didn't infuse his own righteousness into the sinner. 
He declared the sinner righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that justifies us, that makes us righteous. So let's talk just a little bit about this view of infused righteousness. This was the view of the day. This is what the Catholic Church teaches. It's what Luther was taught. It's what Luther believed until he saw for himself from the Scripture what actually the Apostle was saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The reason Luther struggled so with this verse was due to the Roman Catholic teaching that the righteousness or justice of God was something that we were to actively achieve ourselves. In Catholic teaching, God's own righteousness is infused in us so that we may actively work to justify ourselves and make ourselves righteous before God. For example, the infusion or impartation of righteousness happens at baptism. And when we are infused with the grace to work toward increasing righteousness, we do that to the point of one day becoming justified before God. This is why Luther hated the phrase righteousness of God, because the righteousness of God, Luther knew that God was a just God, a holy God, and justice would demand that justice be served. And Luther knew in himself that he would never, he had never had, would never have the ability to justify himself before God. He didn't have it within himself. But that's what he believed the scripture was teaching. And this is why Luther and the Catholic Church uh, believed in the doctrine of purgatory. So you're never going to be completely justified in this life, Luther believed. So you spend, after this life, your time in purgatory still working toward justification so you could ultimately achieve heaven. So it was a righteousness infused in us so that we would then be able to work to justify ourselves. For example, the infusion or impartation of righteousness happens in baptism. This is what the church taught. This is what Luther understood. And when we are infused with the grace to work toward increasing righteousness to the point of being justified before God, that view of infusion makes grace, that grace given to us, it makes it possible for us to work toward our own justification and our own sanctification, but it doesn't secure for us justification. So do you understand that doctrine of righteousness being infused in us gave us the opportunity to work toward justifying ourselves before God? Luther said, no way. I don't have it within myself. I'll, I'll never be able to justify myself before God. And I know God demands justice. And so he was hopeless in his understanding that he would have to work to justify himself. The Catholic view holds that the infusion of righteousness is immediate, but justification and sanctification 
is a long process that may carry over into purgatory before one is actually able to reach heaven. In the Catholic view, there is no promise of perseverance. God's grace affords the opportunity to persevere, but it does not promise perseverance. In that teaching, our justification and our sanctification are both achieved through a process we actively engage in from the moment that we are infused with God's righteousness. And the person infused with God's righteousness must actively work to achieve by their own efforts the process of being justified before God. That was the Catholic view. That was the view that Luther held that caused so much angst in him because he knew that he would never be able to justify himself. On the other hand, the reformers, and this was the epiphany that Luther had, the reformers brought a clear distinction between justification and sanctification in terms of when and how it is achieved. For the reformers, the teaching of faith alone indicated that justification was not achieved through a process of works, but was the declaration of a judicial sentence by which a man is declared righteous by God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So when you trust in Jesus, God declares you righteous. Not because you are righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. Not because you're trusting in your own righteousness, because you have none, and I have none either, but because you're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And in that faith, in the righteousness of Christ, the finished work of Christ, God declares you righteous, justified. So the Reformed view is not infused righteousness, but imputed righteousness. Luther came to realize that the righteousness of God demands, that the righteousness that God demands is not activity achieved by our works, but it is passively received through faith. I'm not working to become righteous. I must, by faith, receive the righteousness of Christ. And the fact that God has declared me righteous, it is the gift of God, not the product of our work. Luther came to understand that through faith alone, apart from our works, God counts us righteous in Christ. Now, this is where the declaration of solo fide, or faith alone, comes from. God does not infuse us with his righteousness in order to give us the opportunity to become justified. God imputes to us his righteousness and declares us righteous, period. Through the grace of his imputed righteousness, he justifies us in his sight through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not our righteousness that justifies us, 
but the righteousness of God that is by faith. This was the view of the reformers, and it became a defining issue of the Reformation. And it is still a defining issue today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good news if we must actively work to achieve right standing with God. If our salvation is through our own efforts, even in the smallest part, the good news is no longer good news. The question then becomes, are we saved by grace through faith? Is it the gift of God or not? Do we have reason to boast? Or is our only boast in the cross of Christ? The scripture answers these questions for us. And the short answer is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Where Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The scripture is clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the gift of God. You don't work for a gift. If you do, it's no longer a gift. It's something you have earned. Our salvation, our justification, and our righteousness are gifts given to us from God. They are not products of our work by which we are then able to boast. There is nothing of our salvation that comes from our own righteousness because we have no righteousness. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. But we are counted righteous in Christ through faith. That means the righteousness by which we are justified is not our own. Luther called this an alien righteousness. Not from outer space, but from out of himself. It's a righteousness that he does not have within himself. It is a righteousness that is alien. It is other than us. We trust in a righteousness that is not our own. We trust in God's righteousness that is imputed to us and alien to us. And Paul conveys this truth in his letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The righteousness you have today that justifies you before God is the righteousness which is from God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth is what Luther came to understand that caused him to pin these words. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates 
immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. If you read the Scripture as God's blueprint for you to work your way to heaven, you're going to read the Scripture vastly different than someone who understands what, that, what the Scripture actually reveals to us is our need for the Savior, the only one who can save us, the only one who can justify us, the only one who can make us, declare us righteous. And it is only by grace, and it is only through faith, and it is only in Christ. The point of the Scripture is not to give us a blueprint by which we work our way to heaven. The point of the scripture is to reveal Christ, who is our salvation, our Savior, and the only one who can give us the hope of heaven. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Paul writes. Faith alone is the instrument or the channel through which we receive God's gracious salvation. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Therefore, our justification before God is by grace through faith. Therefore, God's grace, not our faith, is the basis of our salvation. I want you to catch this. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace. But our salvation by God's grace comes to us through faith. We are saved by grace alone, but it is through the channel of faith alone that we receive God's salvation. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Therefore, we are saved by grace, but never apart from faith. The nature of the relationship between grace and faith can be seen in the relationship between faith and works. So the doctrine of faith alone does not exclude the reality of good works. Now, sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we say, as good Protestants who believe in the doctrines of grace given to us through the Reformation, actually, they were just returned to us. They've always been there in Scripture. They were just forgotten and overshadowed by the traditions of men. Sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we say, now I want to make sure you understand that you're not saved by works, so don't worry about works. Just trust in Jesus and you'll be okay. Well, we can fall in the ditch on both sides of this road, right? We can. The scripture is clear. We are not saved by our works. We do not work our way to salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But our faith is never alone. The relationship between faith and works is complementary, not contradictory. Sometimes we talk about faith and works as though they contradict one another, but they do not. It seems too many Christians today live as though there is no relationship between faith and works. That is tragic because our faith is to produce good works. The doctrine of faith alone does not exempt us from good works because our good works are to testify 
of our faith, of our salvation, of our righteousness, of our holiness, of our sanctification that we are working toward through the power of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of faith alone came with great criticism in terms of good works. From the Catholic view, the motivation for good works was to achieve justification and sanctification and ultimately salvation. The thought was that if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, there is no incentive for good works if good works are not necessary for our salvation. This view presents salvation, if you will, as the dangling carrot that we are to keep chasing. Remove the carrot and you remove the motivation for good works. That's a very simplistic understanding, but it's not inaccurate. The retort of the reformers to this criticism was that we may be justified through faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith that justifies will produce a life of sanctification to holiness. In other words, good works in the fruit of the Spirit. That's what sanctification is. Our sanctification is the good works born out of the fruit of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit, the life of Christ in us should produce a manifestation of the life of Christ through us. In other words, if you truly are in Christ, it should be seen, it should be known, it should be heard. Now remember Luther. Luther said, I was a monk who lived a holy life. He was a good boy. But yet, in all of his goodness, he knew that he did not have it within himself to make himself righteous as God is righteous and holy as God is holy. He knew who God was and he knew who he was and he said, "Uh uh-uh, there is a vast gulf here between God and between me. And I don't care what the church says, I don't have it within myself to become that man that God wants me to be, that God demands me to be. So faith that justifies is faith that will produce a life of sanctification and holiness because of the gift that God has given to us, namely the Holy Spirit living in you. And we now, with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, have the power To live a life free from sin, not because we never sin, because we do sin. But we can live a life free from sin knowing that our justification is not dependent upon us becoming perfect in the sight of God. Our justification is us knowing that we can never be perfect in God's sight. Therefore, we look to the only one who is perfect the only one who is sinless, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look to him and as we trust in him, God counts us righteous. But that doesn't relieve us from the motivation to sanctification. 
If you are in Christ, if you profess to love God and to be a child of God, should you want your life to look like God? His holiness, His righteousness? If you belong to Jesus, do you not want your life to be conformed to Jesus? Can you do that in your own power? The answer is no, you can't. Can you do that by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you? Yes. Should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? The answer is yes. That's what the Bible says, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the hope. He didn't leave us hanging there with an impossible task. Paul goes on, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. What is the will of God? What is the pleasure of God for you and for me? It is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Do we have a part to play in that? Yes, we do. We're called to walk in obedience to the Lord. But we're not going to be able to justify ourselves and come to that complete state of glorification and conformity to Christ because we work so hard to do it. Yes, we do work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us. It's his power. It's by his grace that we achieve that. So those who claim to be in right relationship with God but live like the devil demonstrate that they do not rightly understand what faith alone actually means. Faith alone means that we are sinners set free to obey a new master. Sin was our master, but when we have been set free from sin and death by God's grace in Jesus Christ, sin is to no longer be our master. We have a new master. Our compulsion to obey our new master is not his threat of wrath, but his gift of love. This is why Jesus, in answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? His answer was, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. And so what should compel us to sanctification and holiness? It is the love of God. That should compel us. We do not obey to earn God's favor, for it has already been given to us in Christ by grace. We don't earn it. It's a gift. We obey because we have been enlisted into his service as his loyal subjects through the salvation given to us in Christ. Our new status by grace through faith in Christ means we have a new allegiance. Faith is a gift from our Lord that demands our allegiance. What is allegiance? Allegiance is the obligation of a bondservant or a slave to his Lord. It is the fidelity owed by a subject or citizen to a sovereign or government. It is the devotion or loyalty to a person, a group, or a cause. So in our case, as Christians, 
Our allegiance is to Christ, the King of kings, and to his kingdom. Through salvation in Christ, we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death, but we are not free to be and to do whatever we want that falls outside of our allegiance to Christ, our Lord. In saving us, God has brought us into allegiance under Christ the King. We are his royal and loyal subjects who are subject to him. That's what it means to be a subject. If you're a subject of the king, that means you're subject to the king. And if we are subjects of King Jesus, we are to be subject to the king. Now, here in America, we don't like that because we don't want to be subject to anybody. We're free. We're independent. By God, no one's going to tell me what to do, even God himself. No, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to the king, you are his subject, and you are subject to him. We've been liberated, but we are not to use our liberty for vice and violate our allegiance to our king. Rather, we are to use our liberty to serve our king and to do the works that advance his kingdom. Daily works like faithfully washing your dishes, mowing your grass, changing diapers, teaching children, Building homes, repairing cars, going to work and doing the best job you can for your employer because that gives witness to the glory of God. Building families, proclaiming the gospel through word and deed and everything in all of life. We want to focus on the big things, but it's the little things we really should be paying attention to. The good works God calls you to do are not just these big things that you see people on TV doing or you read about in books. It's not having your name in lights. It's being faithful in the dark when no one but God sees you. It would be contradictory to say that I am in allegiance with my king, but live as though I disregard his rule. It would be contradictory to pledge allegiance to a king and to his kingdom and then live with complete indifference to it, though many do. It is our problem in America right now. I want to remind you, church, the problem in America is not in Washington. It's not in Austin. The problem in America is in its pulpits. Because men of God have ceased to preach the gospel. Because we are so in love with our freedom that we forget that we are subject to a king. 
We want to believe we live in a democracy. We don't even know what form of government we live under. We live in a democratic republic. We live in a republic governed by laws. But the reality is, I don't care what you call any form of government, if we're living, breathing, the oxygen that the Creator has given to us on the planet that He created for us, you are living in a theocracy whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, because Christ is King. He is Lord of all. That means He's Lord over our government. He's Lord over the communist Chinese. He's Lord over the state, over the county, over the city. He is Lord of all. And your allegiance, I'm thankful I'm an American, but I'm going to tell you our allegiance is first to Christ, our King. And if He is your King, you are subject to Him and you are not free to live and do whatever you want to do. And how are you going to know how to live? And how are you going to know what to do? Well, that's why He gave you His Word. It's why he put his spirit in you to illuminate that word so that you can walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Now, I digress from my text here. Jesus is our king, and in allegiance to him, we are to pray and work to see his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our faith in Him is to produce good works for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom. And it begins in the most mundane little things you think don't matter, but they actually matter more than you could ever imagine. Jesus told His disciples, I want to remind you, we are his disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He has told us to go, and he has not told us to stop. He has commanded us to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commands. And his promise is that he will be with us. And he is with us. Our faith should never be alone. It must be accompanied by good works because that is what saving faith produces. And that is what our allegiance to Christ demands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. Thanksgiving is this coming Thursday, but this is a table of thanksgiving. It's what the word Eucharist means, and every week we come to the Lord's thanksgiving table to give him thanks, to celebrate. You have already confessed your sin. You have already received the assurance of pardon, so now you come and commune with him and celebrate the Lord, drink his wine and eat his bread and be renewed to go back out into this world and proclaim 
his gospel through word and through deed for his glory. Amen? We will all be served and we will all eat and drink together. Christian, welcome to the Lord's table and welcome to Jesus. Please stand for your charge. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is by grace alone. But faith is never alone. Faith is not just a concept, some thing we hold up in our mind. Faith is not mental assent of believing something is real. Faith is trust. Faith is not here. Faith is here. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and if we believe in our heart, not our head, but we believe in our heart, we trust. Faith is trust. And faith does not mean we simply trust and keep that trust within ourselves. Faith must be known. Faith works. Paul and James are not contradicting one another. They're just pointing us to two different aspects. James says faith must have fruit. Paul says faith has a root, but the root will produce fruit, and the fruit bears witness to the root, your Faith must work because you have been saved by grace, not because you're trying to be saved. And in your salvation by grace through faith, make him known and make his gospel known through your words, through your deeds, through your very life in every aspect of it, from the smallest to the greatest, and give witness to Christ, that Christ would be known, that Christ would be glorified, and that God would see and hear as we humble ourselves and live humbly before him, that he would heal our land. Amen? Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you.